I think the best companies are started out of um, pain points. All the way from big corporates to, to early startups, you compete for talent by selling uh, the culture around you. We have a guiding principle that curiosity counts more, for more than experience. Find your intrapreneurs, give them the resources and give them the space to be able to fail uh, and, and the creativity will start to, to breed. Being authentic to how you're, you're describing your mission is the number one you know, thing, thing that you can do for your, your team. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Corn Ferry's Goliath Meet David podcast. I'm your host, John Palumbo, and I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Stuckey from Corn Ferry. Hi, Cynthia. Hi, John. Now, we created this podcast for all of you executives out there, especially those of you from big enterprise companies, from, from the Goliaths, if you will, who are interested in learning how those Davids, those leaner, more nimble startups and their founders operate since they found ways to do things like create cultures we all admire, even even do things more quickly than larger corporations, things like make decisions. They, they have ways of getting closer to their customer. They have ways of fostering an entrepreneurial spirit in their organizations. They've even found ways to manage and accept failure. So there's a lot to admire and a lot to learn from these types of companies, from these Davids which is probably why there's so much information out there on these topics. But the thing is, a lot of that information that's out there tends to really bombard you with bullet points or headlines or to-do lists, just things to do to, quote-unquote, act like a startup. And while all that's well and good, we wanted to do things a little bit differently. We wanted to speak directly to startup founders and executives and ask them questions that Goliaths really care about. In fact, a lot of the questions that we're going to go through in this podcast were submitted to us by Goliaths. So for this episode, our David is Heather Hartnett. Hi, Heather. Thanks for being here. Hi, John. Hi, Cynthia. Thanks for having me. Now, Heather is the CEO and founding partner of Human Ventures, which is a venture fund and startup studio that invests in exceptional founders that are defining our future. You should definitely check out humanventures.co. And what Cynthia and I are going to do is ask Heather a bunch of questions about her company and their best practices and strategies across all different areas that Goliaths are really interested in learning. So um, so let's get started. So Heather, I think a good way to kick things off would be for you to tell us a bit about your company and your background. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, I, my name is Heather Hartnett. I run a what's called a venture studio. We're uh, an early stage venture fund and a startup studio that backs and builds early stage technology companies. Um, so for for all of you out there who understand, um, you know, the startup world, we um, we go at the earliest stages of company building and we we build with exceptional entrepreneurs and help them with their early product development, hiring, um, customer acquisition strategies, branding, and all of those early things that that really um, are integral to starting a business. And I think it's always in, it's always interesting and inspiring to learn how how startups were started. So maybe you could tell us how you came up with your, you know, the idea for your company. And since you work with so many startup founders, maybe even feel free to t tell us about any interesting and inspirational stories of how, how they came up with the ideas for, they, for their companies. 
Great. Yes. So I think the best companies are started out of um, pain points. You know, when you see an opportunity or you see a challenge that is not met uh, with efficiency, that's that's when the best ideas are sparked. And so when I started Human Ventures with my co-founder, Joe Marchese, in, in 2015, the unmet need that we saw was um, the earliest stages of starting a company were becoming, it, it was easier than ever to start a company. It's harder than ever to win. And so what we mm. saw was the infrastructure to um, to really build from scratch was becoming more sophisticated. And, and, um, and so we created a studio essentially off of the model of, you know, akin to, to a movie studio where we had all of the producers and, and types of, of, you know, talent in-house to be able to help a founder from day one. So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about culture. And a lot of a lot of Goliaths that are listening to this know that it can be really easy to let culture slip as their company gets bigger and bigger. In fact, you know, a lot a lot of them have multiple locations, and each could take on its own culture. And sometimes, no culture ends up being the culture because no one's really communicating or nurturing it. So employees end up just creating one. Maybe you could talk a bit about what culture means to you and your company's culture and, and how that culture is cultivated and maintained. I think, uh, I think culture is becoming one of the most important factors of, um, of company creation. And I say that because talent is everything. Um, the entrepreneur and then how you attract and retain the most talented people is everything. And I think the bar for um, what that looks like is rising. And, you know, all the way from big corporates to, to early startups, you compete for talent by selling uh, the culture around you. And so um, what I think about culture, I think it's Im- imperative that you are intentional about it because as you mentioned, if you do not, if, if you are not intentional about culture in the beginning, one will be afforded to you. It just, it happens. And it's a, it's the aggregate of all of the people. And so we very early on at human ventures decided that, um, that we have something called our guide to being human and that states our values. And it's a, you know, it's a, a broad kind of group of six themes that we say, these are the things that we stand for and that um, you don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to be a certain way. Uh, to, to fit into human, but they are values that underlie the people who sign up to be a part of human ventures. And we really think through how those values aren't just stated on the wall, but they permeate throughout everything we do. So for an example, one of our values is openness. We, you know, in the, in the technology sector, there's been a, traditionally this feeling of kind of stealth mode or elite or op- op- opaque nature. We wanted to combat that. We wanted to say, Everybody is welcome within our in our four walls, and um, and we we want to you know increase the pool of candidates. We want to increase the the perspective of founders. So how do we really create this open um, culture? So we we instituted something called Happy Human Hour. Every um, every month we have a wider ecosystem, you know, call to the wider tech ecosystem in New York City, and anybody's invited to come in, um, meet our founders, meet other investors. We really want that's just one example of how we live some of the values that we set out to to create in the beginning. So so Heather, as you think about um, maintaining that culture as you start to grow, you're adding employees, you're expanding your portfolio. Um, what are some of the plans you have to maintain 
maintain that culture? Yeah, I think you can't make it become, you can't have it be top down. You have to have each employee that comes through on the onboarding process. They have to understand what those mean and then give concrete examples of how they can be living that throughout um, their time. And so I'll give you another example. One of our um, values is collaboration. And so we say collaboration doesn't happen on accident. And each person of the Human Ventures team has to be responsible for um, making sure that the founders within our portfolio are interacting with one another. That there's, it doesn't mean that only the executive team can interact with the founders, but it means that every single person in our staff, on our staff has to be, um, has to be helping facilitate that collaboration. So it's not only are your, are the human ventures employees supposed to collaborate with the founders, but you're saying the founders that are a part of your portfolio, you want them collaborating with each other as well. Correct. Okay. And how do you, what, what I think is interesting about that is when you think about a larger company, the larger companies, the, the Goliaths out there, they really want their teams to collaborate with each other as well. So it's, it's similar in a way, right? There's this idea of, well, it shouldn't just be the, the management or whatever collaborating with a team. There needs to be collaboration among groups and among separate teams because that's where you never know if a group in a completely different area might have solved a problem that you're trying to solve or whatever it might be. How do you facilitate that collaboration among the teams, among your investments? Uh, it's a great question, and we have um, we we conduct experiments all the time. So we do everything as simple as, you know, give a stipend to the founders to go out to dinner together oh, without any human ventures team, and so they're meeting each other and talking about issues and problems amongst themselves. We um, we incentivize them to make introductions for one another because inevitably they've all gone through a process at different times in their in their business creation. Mm. But we we want to reduce the amount of reinventing the wheel that we possibly can. And so by uh, giving them agency to help other founders, we're we're increasing our uh, leverage, you know, as as human ventures um ecosystem for those founders and it's a flywheel they they help one another and then they go through it again and they come back in and in it and it's a it's a reciprocal effect yeah. um and i think that um you know we talked a little bit about this the the cognitive diversity is really important on teams too so within our office we have 10 uh, portfolio companies working at any given time at human ventures in addition to our human ventures team. And we will, when we want to think about a problem that might um, be solved for the studio itself, we'll bring a cross-functional team together to come up with a solution. So for example, um, we have something called the human hall. It's like a town hall once a month and all of the companies will talk about the problems they're they're looking to solve. In order to facilitate that structure, we, we took, um, you know, people from different teams. We have engineers and creative folks, and we wanted to make sure there was cognitive diversity to say, are we thinking about this problem from all different angles and, and coming out with the best outcome? 
And and Heather, that fits what a lot of Goliaths are, are having to go back and do, right? This whole concept of inclusion and every employee's ideas and perspectives and approaches are necessary to diversify how you solve work, how you solve problems, how you look at it, right? Your customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and inclusion, it, that kind of practice that you're representing is something that many of the large organizations, Goliaths, lost over time mm-hmm. and are now trying to um, integrate back into the way they do business um, and to promote, right? They call it diversity and inclusion, right? You hear about it all the time. Um, but it's much harder to reinst- reestablish that in a business um, than it is to continue to foster that. Yeah, there's some, you know, there's some things I can offer here from my perspective. I'm not saying that we do this perfectly, but it's something we think about and constantly um, get get better at. We are obsessed with personality traits and skills that go beyond the resume. And what I mean by that is I think in the next 10 years, you're going to see the intangible skills that we take for granted or that we don't have the best vocabulary around uh, become more and more critical and more important in terms of team building, in terms of understanding how one works with one another. And so when you're talking about, you know, it's in our name, human ventures. We want to be able to understand how the human dynamics uh, work. And so we, we've... Uh, experimented with personality tests, anything that gives a common language to um, to ways that people work together, I think is really important. And that might be a part of your culture early on that you establish, whether it's um, the big five personality test or it's Myers-Briggs or um, Strengths Finder. At least you're starting with something that you can say, are you somebody who um, is an operator or you spark ideas or are you somebody who runs the idea across the the field or are you somebody who gets that over the goal line and just some of this common language that you might be able to establish allows you to um to facilitate meetings and collaboration a lot easier great thank you so heather um, for for a lot of goliaths when when you when you say um lean startup the first thing that comes to mind is agility since startups are just known for their ability to move more quickly so, for example, one of the things that David's, like yourself and, and, and companies in your portfolio, do more quickly is make decisions. And, and, and big companies admire that. So, some would even say that your this decision-making is due to the fact that maybe there's less red tape, there's fewer checks and approvals, whatever it might be. Can you talk a bit about how your company or, or even the companies in your portfolio are able to make decisions more quickly? Yeah, I think... I think actually it's one of the only advantages that startups have over <laughs> uh, over the incumbents or over large corporations, right? Corporations are extremely sophisticated now. They know their customer base. They know what their, um, their customers need. Um, they have the distribution. They have capital. They have tech teams now that can build products. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, if you're thinking about you know the startup environment, this ability to test, learn, iterate, test, learn, iterate, that muscle is probably the most important muscle that you can gain uh, to, to, um, to grow fast and to outpace, um, you know, the big incumbents. That's helpful. And how, how does then more agile decision-making impact the employee responsibility or accountability? 
Oh, that's a great question. I think you, again, going back to, to culture, do you say that it's okay to fail internally? What does failure mean? Are you documenting what you learn each time so that you're not repeating those failures? Um, can you create that startup like culture where you're constantly inquisitive? You know, we have a, um, we have a guiding principle that curiosity counts more for more than experience meaning you're you're always asking the questions and then um, and then learning and iterating off of data and facts versus um, just trying to you know create something that you think should be the system or the process so, so from your experience then are there any trade-offs um, to making decisions more quickly yeah I think there's something to be said for uh, for process but what we did with human ventures, we said, we'll put process to something once we know that it works. So we'll test and we'll test. <laughs> and then if something works, then and only then do we put process in place because it's so easy to over uh, methodize. <laughs> That's not a word, mm -hmm. but, you know, over process uh, some of these things. And, and it makes you feel like you have momentum, but it's um, it's kind of false productivity. Yeah. So what advice would you give to companies that want to accelerate their decision-making process? Um, I would make sure that the people on the team have um, complementary skill sets. So you should always have somebody who can make decisions fast, um, but then somebody who is analyzing those and seeing what's working, what does the data show, and then what um, what process do you want to put in place after that to make sure that that's a re repeatable um, a repeatable event. So, so and, and another area I think where David's have seem to have a more, and there's a little bit of overlap here, but a, a more agile process versus th their Goliath counterparts is in, is in product development and innovation, even, even just creativity in general. Maybe you could talk a bit about your company's approach to, to product development, innovation, and creativity. Oh, definitely. One of the things I love to think about is that I think creativity um, thrives with constraints. So something that startups have that breed innovation that I don't think uh, larger corporations do is really you, you're going to run out of money if you don't figure out what the, the product market fit is. And so the whole environment is run fast towards you find towards finding something that's working. And, um, you know, for us, people say, how do you know when to stop investing or how do you know when to kill an idea? Hmm. And really, because we have a set amount of financing, you have to go very fast and find something that's working um, because you have those constraints set and those boundaries set. So I think that's a big part of um, product development and innovation that is bred in an early team. Um, and then the other part of it is the ability to fail. So I see a lot of times um, reputation being something that you, you can't you can't jeopardize. So to put something out there and have it fail is not an option. Now with what we do, failure, we, we kind of run to failure. And if it doesn't, we're pleasantly surprised. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that mentality is okay. Um, because you're going to, you're going to have a lot more shots on goal and you're, you know, don't be precious with your product. Everything is an experiment. Um, so we say something in our in our product development phase, we say collide with the market as soon as possible. And, you know, Reid Hoffman, his famous quote is, you know, if you're not embarrassed about the product that you're releasing, you've waited too long. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true.
Heather, one of the things that we've noticed with many of our Goliath customers is this desire to build a more agile organization and an element that is pushing down decision-making, empowering the employee at the um, point of the project or where the experiments are going on. Could you give some advice on how um, a Goliath should go about ensuring that happens and making that successful? Sure. Uh, you know, Cynthia, Cynthia, I've I've thought a lot about this. I I don't want to speak for internal cultures. I know there's a lot of um, there are a lot of different ways to innovate within a big company, but I look at the world in terms of people, and each person has a certain amount of motivation and incentive structure around them that breeds creativity or you know incentives to be able to to create, and. I think that they have to be aligned. So what I love about working with entrepreneurs is that um, they eat what they kill. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. you know, they make happen. Nothing happens without them really pushing that forward. And then it's high risk, but it's high reward. And giving somebody that incentive structure, it just, I've seen it time and time again, it creates a different mentality. So I don't know how this works. I don't want to, you know, be telling telling somebody how to run their business, but I think you really do have to think about what's the upside for an employee of a big company to work the amount of intensity and hours and really you think about it every single day of your of your waking time and oftentimes during your sleep. Um, what is what is the incentive there to to do that and and make sure that the structures are there to give them some of the upside. And I think some people have done this uh, better than others. I think people have different motivations at different points in their career or their family life, et cetera, et cetera. We have, we have a persona of entrepreneur called the entrepreneur in corporate clothing. And you can identify people who are constantly pushing intern, in, internally in a corporation to build a new business unit, to um, extract insights from customers and start thinking through building that idea. And they're gathering internally equity from each department that they need to. And they, they're able to build within a big corporation. And I look for that skill set and I say, if somebody wants to breed innovation internally, find those types of people. Find your intrapreneurs. Give them the resources and give them the space to be able to fail uh, and and the creativity will start to, to breed. Excellent. Thank you. Um, thinking on, on that idea of failure, the fear and perceived cost of failure prevents many big Goliath companies from taking risks. And even if they do take risks, usually it's more calculated. And over time, this can create kind of a culture or an environment of risk mitigation. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, companies like yourself, the Davids, embrace this risk-taking and failing. And, and for example, many startup functions by testing, like you've mentioned, the experiment, the test, the learn, the iteration, and killing a bad idea quickly or learning from the failure and improving. So the failure is ultimately viewed as a positive learning experience overall. There seems to be this freedom then to take a risk and try something and make a mistake. What's your company's standpoint then regarding taking risks and failure? Well, inherently, our business is, is all about risk. Uh, we have a lot of mm. shots on goal. We we do look at founders and we say, because we're betting on those people, we'll bet on the next three things that they do because two probably won't work out. And I think the mentality of um, really investing in people versus ideas uh, is what we've adopted 
because um, once you've assessed and you've identified some of these people who have the X factor, who know how to create something out of nothing, uh, they're invaluable. And I think giving them the right environment is more important than um, measuring on whether or not the KPIs came out the way that they were supposed to. So, so what go what goes into what goes into creating and maintaining a let's let's call it a risk taking culture where failure is not only accepted but it's encouraged. So, so for example, you know, what processes do you have? How do you, how do you how do you hire for that? You know, how do you hire for that? How do you identify that? You know that that X factor that you were talking about in the um, in the investments in the portfolios that you invest in. Yeah. So for human ventures, you know, again, one of our values is growth. And we say, if you're, if you're not out of your comfort zone, you're not growing. Hmm. That means that when we hire somebody, we have to really assess whether or not they have the risk tolerance for early stage Hmm. company building. And the risk tolerance means, are you comfortable with ambiguity? If one day your title is something and then we have to restructure because a founder needs something else, is that going to completely throw you? Do you need everything in a perfect little box to be able to understand it? Or do you like and thrive within a little bit of chaos and then get excited when you see that chaos turn into something more structured? And so I think, um, again, it's assessing and being very honest about what your tolerance for risk is. And um, and it's all about the people. And then from there, you can say, what is the risk tolerance of the organization, mm-hmm. right? Because, um, because a, a company needs to think about, a public company needs to think about quarterly earnings. They need to think about how you're, you're delivering on, on revenue and, and things. Oftentimes, these you know, startups will take five, six, seven years to show the results that um, that corporates we see, or as you're calling it, the the Goliaths. They want to see in in a quarter. It just doesn't work that way. Right. So, what advice would you give to them about creating that a larger company about creating that type of that type of culture? Um, I think actually, I mean, it's a little bit self-serving here, but I think that partnering with external innovation shops, you know, so we, we've done this now with a couple of big organizations. If you partner with an environment that that's their culture and you can infuse, um, you know, some of that into your, your teams, I think it's a breath of fresh air. I think it makes people think differently. Mm -hmm. I think it's a mutually beneficial relationship and we've seen it work, uh, work now many times over where, um, you know, outsource a little bit that, that risk tolerance, uh, and then when things start to become a little bit more structured, you can have the option to pull that back in and see if it thrives within your DNA and your culture of the company. Can you talk a little bit about how that how that works? Maybe just how that structure works, or how you have it structured? If if unless you unless you can, unless it's just unless it's proprietary. No, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's it's pretty new. We because we have an engine that we help build companies. Um, uh, corporates have said, you know, what does it look like to hire human ventures as a, as an internal company building engine? And because we really have a, a very strong roster of founder, can we, can we bring founders into some of the corporates and say, can we brainstorm together on what hmm. uh, a new company innovation might look like? <laughs> and then we can almost incubate that externally. And we say, what does a company mean to what, what size does that project have to get to before it really gives, you know, the, the executives give that 
any type of mind share. Is it a $100 million business? Is it a $150 billion, million business? And then we know what we're playing with. So from zero to a $100 million business, there's a lot in there that you can work with a partner with to be able to create. Yeah, that's great. It almost becomes like an outsourced incubator in a way. Right. Yes. It also gives options for you and your culture as a corporate to be able to say, spend some time in the innovation lab so you can see that and think and then bring those principles back into your teams, uh, into the into your department. Yeah, great point. Um, Heather, some Goliaths uh, we work with face the challenge of perceived distance. In other words, the team or the group that's really responsible for managing the customer input can become somewhat distant from the customer. An example would be project um, management or marketing group. Often they end up working through the sales team that's on the front line talk, talking to the customer. So they're not really able to hear or get the customer feedback directly and and feel somewhat removed from the customer. And then on the flip side, we often hear these great stories about David's, how, how they stay close to the customer and the audience and the uh, they're serving. Can you tell us how your company and maybe members of your team or those within your portfolio stay close to the customer and experience that feedback firsthand and why do you think that's so important to the business and how does it help you overall? Oh, this is such a good point. This is uh, one of the keys. I think we we make the founders and we together with the founder will talk to you know at least a hundred customers before we even begin to scope out how to approach a solution to a problem. You want to hear from as much um, of your data set or your your you know your um, estimated customer as possible uh, because you'll hear insights that you know that you can't that you just don't know on your own. You might have a hunch about something, but until you hear customers say it, um, you should you should really be out to test and validate that as much as possible. And then we say, you know, um, collide with the market as soon as possible. So go out with an early, um, what we call minimal viable product, an MVP, and see how customers react to it. See how they, um, what breaks and what doesn't. There's this sense that you can only launch once. We have a, a term, always be launching. You know, there's so much noise out there now. You could launch five times and nobody even knows who you are yet. So... <laughs> Um, really don't think that anything's precious. Uh, just get it out there and see how customers are interacting with it. And that, I think, again, is the 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 big the biggest uh, advantage that a that a young startup has is to be able to to do that in an effective way. All right. So so, so Heather, we all, we've all I, I, we understand the importance of of getting that customer get, getting the customer feedback and listening to customers. But we've also all heard that Henry Ford quote, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? And there's a lot of startups out there that really do subscribe to that and believe that customer input can sometimes be limiting. And there's dangers to listening to customers too closely. What's your stance on that? Uh, Definitely. I mean, I think customers will guide your decisions, but a really... uh really good product team will hear the customer journey as it is right now and then understand how to translate that into what's a more effective and efficient way to be able to execute on that problem. This is the part where founders have an innate 
sense and of of something it's the x factor and it's not taking data and just um you know translating that directly it's taking data interpreting it and then integrating that with the insight of where the world is going and testing that and mm -hmm. so this is my favorite favorite um, part of watching founders do that so an example um you know we have one company that's a digital health platform and the you know the customers were saying you know we can meet with endocrinologists uh, it's hard to find the endocrinologist and they knew all the pain points but it took the founder to understand how to stitch all of the different um, aspects together to make a seamless process of testing diagnosing delivering you know a telemedicine platform and then also the prescription that was that was given um, that's a product insight that the founder had versus the, the customer would never have mm. known that that's what they wanted yeah so, so um, moving on so one of the things that I think everyone admires about smaller leaner faster moving startups is is the entrepreneurial spirit that everybody seems to have and of course a lot of larger companies, really want to instill that spirit in their employees as well. So with this in mind, what advice would you give to leadership at a big corporate company that wants to facilitate an entrepreneurial culture? I think uh, I think you want to be exposed to more entrepreneurs uh, hmm. as many as you can. And so what we like to do, we actually we call them space jams internally. So if there's a category or there's a challenge that – um, a corporate's facing that they want to have different perspectives on. We will put together a SWAT team of entrepreneurs, of industry experts, of investors who are thinking about that uh, problem, and we'll we'll jam on mm. what that looks like. And I think being exposed to different types of thinking um, will definitely inform some of that entrepreneurial culture. But another part of it is just entrepreneurs are a little bit different in the way that they um, they're a little, a little crazy, you know, and it's hard, it's hard to do it and you get beat up. And so another one of our values is resilience. And so everybody who has a plan, you know, the famous quote of you have a plan until you, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. Um, and, uh, I think that, you know, you have to, you have to have this ability to be resilient and not be attached to outcomes and um, and that's really easier said than done. And so I think it's really about finding the people who who innately have that characteristic and then surrounding them with people who want to learn that skill and get motivated and energized by that um, by that way of functioning. So so building on that last question, Heather, do you think that entrepreneurship is something that actually could be taught? <laughs> Ooh, that's a that's a great <laughs> question. I think there's a big opportunity in identifying skills and qualities in people and nurturing those skills and qualities. Um, but it's, it's hard to teach being a founder. And I see this over and over again, you know, the media has glorified being a founder or starting your own company, <laughs> the market, because we've been in this bull market is supporting a lot of people starting their own business, but really not everybody should be a founder and that's okay. You should just know where your risk tolerance lies and where your, um, you know, what their desired, you know, work ethic should be. And, I think be really realistic about that. And so we have a couple different 
you know, personas. And sometimes you're the 10th employee. Sometimes you have to have 50 employees before you feel like it's a real business. And even then it could be an entrepreneurial endeavor, right? So I'm very keen on saying, what does a startup mean to you? Is it, is it Airbnb or, cause that's <laughs> not a startup anymore, even though in some eyes, some people's eyes that is right. Mm -hmm. Is it, um, is it really starting from ground zero? Because that's tough and it takes a long time. So, so entrepreneurship in many ways, in your definition, there are certain traits and behaviors and drivers that uh, are prone to being that those characteristics that you need. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't foster and develop that, but it, it sounds like you believe there's a foundation often that people start with. I, I believe so. But I do think that this can be fostered early on in people's career and in education environments too. So I grew up with an entrepreneur as a father. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. I really think that the way that I grew up and was conditioned to think about solving problems has um, set the, the course for me to think about, about business in a different way. Um, and so I think, you know, being around and emulating some of the people who you find inspiring or who you want to be like is, is important for young people early on in their career. And then finding people who give you that opportunity and really um, mentor you in that direction is important too. How can a company go about identifying those people that have the entrepreneurial spirit or, or have that, that founder mindset and leverage it for the, in, inside of their company? One way that I, I, I've seen some of some businesses do this is really to call for, for different types of innovation. Having an open platform mm -hmm. or an ability to, um, to submit ideas that the company should be testing or trying, and then, um, and then giving resources to people who you've identified might be that, that type of person who could run with those, those ideas and concepts. Yeah. So you're, you're spawning innovation you know, uh, internally. Right. It's great. It's a great approach. Even when a big enterprise firm does have a mission, it's nearly always one that the current CEO hasn't created, simply because many of these longstanding firms have outlived their original founders. So the mission is often one that the CEO has inherited. And for that legacy mission to remain effective, the CEO must be able to communicate the corporate mission clearly, effectively using modern channels, and to communicate it directly to the corporate employees. Unfortunately, surveys of execs at big enterprise firms find that many of them think their companies lack this coherent vision for the future. In other words, CEOs are not doing a great job at communicating the firm's mission. And then there are the Davids that studies show startups that flourish often have founders and CEOs who are mission driven and can rally the workforce to join the, the mission. With this in mind, how do you go about kind of rallying the troops and creating this dedicated passion for your um, company mission and even yourself? Wow, that's a great question. I, I you know, I think because we're so young and we start with companies so early, you have to, you have to revisit your mission quite a bit to make sure that it's still encompassing, uh, what you originally set out to do, because that could change more rapidly than something of a, a company that that's a mainstay that's been there for a long time. With that said, I think, uh, it's important to ask the question, why, you know, why are you doing this? What, what are the motivating factors to start this? What gets you up in the middle, you know, in the middle of the night, gets you up in the morning to go and do this day in, day out. 
Um, there's a great book by Simon Sinek that's called uh, Start With Why. And it does allow you to synthesize your mission and and just down to the core in the essence. And then, you know, you can work with people to be able to communicate that to the team. But I think it's important. It's very important for the team to have that sense of purpose and more and more as we see the generations come into the workforce, gen, you know, gen Y really being a, a driving force of this, people want that purpose or mission in everything that they do. They can be creating products, they could be, you know, in consumer packaged goods or in software as a service, but there has to be some underlying purpose that's driving why they're doing something or they won't be as effective as they can be. And what advice would you give to, let's say, let's say a CEO to help her or him better communicate their mission and create that that dedication and that passion among employees? So we have a, a term called founder market fit. And what that means to me is why that founder and why now? And I think this is something that's really important for leaders, ev- you know, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And at the lack of being trite, I think authenticity is something that's, that's overused, but it's really because there's a reason why it's overused. <laughs> Being authentic to what you're trying to do resonates with people on a deep level. They don't even know why. It goes beyond intellect. So I think being authentic to how you're you're describing your mission is the number one, you know, thing thing that you can do for your your team. So Heather, kind of wrapping things up, what would you say are the most critical success factors for future startups? Oh gosh. <laughs> how much time do you have? <laughs> um and- there are a lot of um, there are a lot of factors that go into a successful startup, and I think people have now for the last couple of decades tried tried to dissect what the most important points of leverage are, and nobody can see this exact common thread. That and if you did, then you'd be able to repeat that process, you know, like a like a machine. But here are the three areas that we tried to solve for in the beginning. The number Number one um, is, you know, is there a need for the product or service that you're putting out into the marketplace? Is it a real need? Because a lot of things can can go pretty far with just being a hypothesis and, and not really having a customer base. The second thing is people dynamics. Are, is it the right founder in place? Is it the right team to be able to execute on that? Are you understanding how people work together uh, in under stress and what their ability is to, to execute? And number three is uh, resources. So uh, do you have the funding to be able to continue that innovation and growth before you've been able to prove that people are willing to pay for the product? And uh, those are the three most important factors that we think in the early days um, will make or break, uh, you know, the success of a, of a founder. And then the largest overarching, you know, mm-hmm. indicator is timing. And that's something that nobody has the ability to predict. But I think if you have the first three kind of honed and you're listening to, to your intuition and you're listening to those indicators, then uh, then you fall into timing. And so timing can also be construed as luck. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. No doubt. Well, uh, Heather, thank you. Thank you so much for for all the time, all the food for thought and for and for being one of our one of our Davids. Um, we really appreciate you doing this. 
Well, thank you. And talent is everything we look at, so this is very fortuitous. All right, and for everyone listening, we hope this was as inspiring for you as it was for us, and you're able to take some of the advice and approaches and strategies Heather discussed and apply them to your company or your business. Thank you so much for listening.